Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversation about belonging and otherness. Each program will reach for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist with Emma Troop, an experimental theater group in New York City, and I am here with my co-host, Polly Young Eisendratt, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teaching of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. The title of today's podcast is Clearing the Fog of War. As the history of Homo sapiens suggests, we are more likely to be at war against others in our species than to be able to live peacefully with them. And yet some of this agitation about facing others who have opposed or harmed us might be able to be contained and understood. In the 5th century BCE text, The Art of War, attributed to Sun Tzu, there are rules of conflict that insist on little punishment of enemies after defeat, and on the importance of providing some stable and secure circumstances for those you have conquered. The primary teaching is interdependence, that the welfare of those you have defeated is also your own welfare going forward. In other words, if you treat your defeated enemies well, they are unlikely to retaliate against you. Nelson Mandela created the prototype for this way of behaving in modern times with his commitment to not retaliating against the white South Africans who had imprisoned him. And so in today's podcast, we will talk about the possibilities and impossibilities of clearing some of the fog of war in our time. And so welcome, Polly. It's, it, it just feels so timely that we're doing this particular podcast now when the drums of war and our own culture are being sounded. Yes, Eleanor. Unfortunately, we we're in the you know at least at this moment in the shadow of possibility of war with Iran, and also something that very much disturbed me when I listened recently to Stuart Russell speaking with Sam Harris is that we're in the shadow of the possibility of creating autonomous weapons from an AI base that is pretty much exactly the base for self-driving cars. So as soon as we get the self-driving cars out there, and actually they're out there already to some extent, I mean the Tesla can park itself and so on, that AI kind of mechanism, that kind of machine can be transferred to weaponry. And as soon as it becomes autonomous of humans driving it, it can, in a particularly swarm situation, become chaotically uncontrollable. In other words, go after targets where it cannot be stopped. So the prospect of autonomous weaponry actually probably stops me in my boots as much as the threat to go to war with Iran. War, as we conceive it still, often is a war with a particular enemy, but autonomous weapons could make war the possibility for even a, a 
some sort of opposition that might be more casual, you could go after your enemies with a swarm of these weapons. And so the way we've understood war over time has changed. And yet I would say that if you go back to the early kind of hunter-gatherer days that Harari investigated in Sapiens, he does show that Homo sapiens were capable of mass destruction even back then because they would drive masses of animals or other humans into these ravines, just drive them over the edge, and then you know their bodies would fall in and they would die in, in large, large numbers, way beyond, say, what a you know, throwing a stone at somebody would result in. So I think often we we believe that our ancestors were caught up with this kind of person by person kind of warfare, but no, indeed, they they also did mass warfare. And um, now, you know, the possibilities that we have for creating weapons that would not even have a human involved with them. It's terrifying and also to recognize as we have many, many times that the Homo sapien is negatively motivated and very quickly can move into a position of feeling as though somebody or some bodies are enemies, you know, that they are actually poised to be destructive. When you believe that someone else is poised to be destructive, you can attempt to destroy them out of a feeling of superiority that you need to go after them because they're morally wrong or inferiority that you need to go after them to protect yourself that you can't possibly otherwise protect yourself. So either the feeling of superiority or the feeling of inferiority can motivate us to go to war with other homo sapiens. And of course, we have done that always, always throughout our history. Well, now with globalization and, you know, there's more of an awareness of interdependence so that it's not so, it's not like in the past where you could go and destroy an enemy and conquer an enemy or whatever, but now everything is so interconnected. Well, I don't know if there is an awareness of it or just the marketing aspect of it, you know. I mean, I can't tell if people really have a stronger sense that their actions ripple out through, you know, from one relationship to the next, to the next, to the next, or if they instead simply have a very high level of anxiety about the media that they see, particularly through social media, that have to do with other parts of the world. You know, because you could have a lot of anxiety about what's happening with the refugees, or you could have a lot of anxiety about what's happening in Iran and Syria right now, and perhaps also even a lot of empathy and sympathy. But your ability to actually make a change in that situation is pretty limited, actually, unless you are military. I mean, if you're military, you're in a different in a different position in regard to the decision-making that goes on. But a true understanding of interdependence or a true appreciation of interdependence leads paradoxically to the awareness that the most important people 
are the people that are in the room with you. The most important beings point. are the ones that you can influence right. directly. Right. And then that ripple effect through interdependence goes out and out and out. So one act of kindness to somebody that you can influence could stop a war on the other side of the world. But no amount of anxiety about what is happening in China or what's happening in Iran is going to change China, Iran, or anyone in the room even with you. You know, so in that sense, I, I feel like there's a lot of anxiety that we're aware of right now in regard to the kind of media that we have that have put us in touch with people all over the world. And yes, many of our products are made in China and many of us, actually the cell phone especially, was you know manufactured, the actual phone in China at, the, at a great cost to a lot of people in China. Uh, but I suppose a great benefit too in a certain way because otherwise they wouldn't have been able to actually employ so many people. But whether that cell phone makes you more alert to how you behave with the people that are around you, I don't know. You know, I think we have a knowledge that the world interacts on many, many levels rapidly, but I think we still do not understand how our own actions affect the interdependence of the world, you know, and, and that's again, that whole issue of starting actually with yourself, but it is the interactive process of yourself with others and the recognition of the complexity of your snow globe and how you come to any interaction with a lot of habitual see, hear, feel, you know, with a lot of habitual seeing things outside, seeing things inside, hearing things outside, hearing things inside, feeling things outside, feeling things inside that will tend to move you towards a reactivity that's habitual rather than to, oh, let me see, let me understand what is going on here. So Understanding is so important. Yeah, or even, even stopping, even pausing to find out instead of assuming that you know the exact thing yeah. that well, needs to be done. This is the work I've been doing in my film work, dealing with war and peace and having done the work at a pattern level and, and wrestling with all these deeper, deeper questions, but then at a certain point just realizing that there was nothing I could personally do or say that would make a difference. And it was like laying down, like, you know, taking out the white flag and just laying it down and then starting to do the inner work that all that I could be... The only thing that I could do that made sense to me was to, to be able to go within myself and, and find a way to dissolve the enemy. Mm-hmm. Well, and so that that was that became a kind of peacekeeping mission, um, not just for me, but for all of us, all the whole team of artists who are working on this project. And it just became so clear that there was, you know, it just didn't matter. So when you actually can dissolve a sense of the internal enemy from the point of view of generally it's around the dislike we have of ourselves, you know, so that we have this constant narrative about what we don't do well and what we haven't achieved and so on. Once you can do that, then you have the capacity to work more openly with others because you don't have to react. You know how to experience your thoughts and feelings without taking them into action automatically, you know? And so it's that 
ability to actually pause and reflect or psychoanalysts call it mentalizing that you can experience your actual subjective experience without discharging it into words or actions really quickly. Mm-hmm. Now, and if you do, to be able to also catch yourself and not do it again. Yeah, you if you do, you so, catch yourself, so, yeah. you see it, and yeah. you don't do you it again. Say, yes, yeah. yes. And so that is the thing that is completely dissolved by the fog of war. So that's why I wanted to talk about the fog of war, because I think we've talked about war from the point of view of creating an enemy and then wanting to fight that enemy. What I'd like to talk about now is what's called the fog of war, which is the effect that happens when you're actually in war. And so McNamara, Robert McNamara, you know, who was the Secretary of Defense during the Vietnam War, uh, has uh, done a wonderful film with Errol Morris uh, called The Fog of War, in which he talks about what he's particularly concerned about is the, the way the U.S., our country, has gone to war in a way that is completely disproportionate to the harm that others have done to us. So for example, with the Vietnam War, also in World War II, what we did to the Japanese was out of line with what they did at Pearl Harbor. And then Vietnam, and then uh, you know what we had planned to do in Cuba, which didn't come about. Or what we did with Iraq. And then what we did with Iraq. So 9-11, in which there were 3,000 and some Americans killed, I don't know the exact numbers, has resulted in us killing hundreds of thousands of people. And destroying countries. And destroying countries, even even though, you know, those countries, also it wasn't clear that Afghanistan, while it harbored terrorists, it wasn't clear that Afghanistan really was going after us. I mean, what happened in the 9-11 attack was there was a reactivity to find an enemy. And this was going to be terrorism. This was the enemy. We were making a war on terrorism. And then we went after the people that we called the terrorists and we disproportionately killed people, wiped out their civilizations and I am sure created a fog of war in countries where we were present in a way that was so destructive and yet we were trying to act as though we had a constructive thing to offer them. And so that that disproportionality is a part of the That's fog tragedy. of war. Yeah, That's and it's, it's part of the fog of yeah. war because once you get into war, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, you know, once you enter into a war, and honestly, here in America, we talk about the war on cancer, the war on right. drugs, the war on terrorism, the war on the war on women's bodies, the war on sugar. There's been a war on um, cigarettes, cigarettes and uh, drugs. You know, so all of those somehow. Yeah. We don't understand. We haven't understood that 
when you make that kind of statement about war, then you've created an enemy. Then you create the the fog of war. You create a situation in which you're acting in a manner that is often disproportionate to reality. So That's you know, a great point, Polly. Yeah, and His Holiness said, as soon as you go to war, you create chaos. Yeah, yeah. Chaos is the deepest problem for human beings. It's because it's confusion. Yeah. And confusion, again, if you look at this from the point of view, so Buddhism often talks about the three poisons or you know, the three toxins, so those poisons. Actually, they're sometimes also uh, simply called uh, the kind of things that keep the wheel of life and death going. The three of those are greed, hatred, and delusion. Delusion runs the greed and the hatred, and it is confusion. That's the nature of it. So greed, of course, is the belief in a material world and the belief that you could protect yourself by gathering more and more things for yourself in the material world. Yes. And then hatred is the belief that you could protect yourself by pushing away things that are harmful, by making a war on cigarettes, cancer, gluten, sugar, you know, you make a war on those things that are harmful and that will protect you. Both the hatred and the greed are rooted in the delusion. The delusion is the main problem. And so what is it a confusion about? Well, again, you get back to the words that you use because when the Buddha taught it, it was the confusion about anatman. It was the confusion that there is no stable, essential, ongoing soul or self, and so you cannot protect it. That's the confusion. So the confusion is the deepest, worst thing. It's the thing that promotes the hatred and the greed. So when you're in the fog of war, not only do you have the fundamental confusion that there really is not a self to protect, but then you've got a lot more confusion about what is actually going on because now you've let go of all the rules that would be these rules of civilization or the rules of, you know, not retaliating or the rules of, you know, not taking more than an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, the rule of turning the cheek. All of those rules are gone in right, war. Right. And you so know. the confusion, the chaos within each of us and how that affects our feelings. I mean, feelings, not right. emotion. I mean, the yes, emotions yes, are right, all right. stirred up. Everything's I mean, stirred up. fire that started. That, that's right. And, but the, so that, so, so. There's you know, a greater outpro- confusion. Right. And so the, the, so to be able to outproject on the enemy, it, it helps you to stabilize within yourself because you've got this object out here that you could focus on. Well, you even get confused about that. I mean, I want to read the the definition of the fog of war. And it's a term that comes from German. And it's defined as the uncertainty in in situational awareness experienced by participants, especially in military operations or in war. The term seeks to capture the uncertainty regarding one's own capability, adversary capability, and adversary intent during an engagement operation or a campaign 
military forces try to reduce the fog of war through in the military intelligence and friendly force tracking systems, but the term is also used to define uncertainty in the mechanics of war games. So let me just say one other thing about the definition. So I'm not going to talk too much about this book because I have not read it. I just know this definition from Carl von Clausewitz. I, I think it's Clausewitz, Clausewitz. And this is an 1832 book on the fog of war. And he says, war is the realm of uncertainty. Three quarters of the factors on which action and war is based are wrapped in a fog mm. of greater or lesser uncertainty. A sensitive and discriminating judgment is called for a skilled intelligence to scent out the truth. So I just want to go back to this whole idea of making war on things, people, situations, ideas, that once you get into that frame of mind, then we're in the realm of uncertainty. And when it involves true violence and military action, three quarters of the factors on which action is based are wrapped in a fog. And so that means people are just reacting. They're not actually following a plan. Right, right. They're, not, they're not following rules anymore. They're not going in with a sense of any understanding of what you might call respect for the other. Right. So the blind spots are just what's leading. Everybody's in their snow globe. Everybody's and they're in their, in their snow, snow globe, globe and they're actually just really willing to destroy somebody yeah. else's snow globe. And it's partly because you don't know who is doing what to right, whom. Right, you don't, right. you can't tell, is this person my enemy or my friend? And even like with sugar, how much do I need to eat sugar in order to stay alive? Or is it is sugar the enemy of my body? Or is it the friend of my body? If you make a war on sugar, right. you actually don't know how to treat sugar. You can no longer say, oh, yes, you know, I need a certain amount of carbohydrates. I need a certain amount even of straight unrefined carbohydrates and whatever. You begin to get confused. Oh, is that a bad thing or a good thing? Does, you know, should I eat a piece of bread or should I not eat a piece of bread? You can see it even when we make war on something like, let's say, the war on smoking. There are people who really benefit from smoking. And many times these days, they may have vaping available to them. Maybe they don't, whatever. But those people, I would say, in North America here, to a person, they know that cigarette smoking causes cancer. That is not news. They know it. They're willing to take that risk because the benefits that they get from the smoking outweigh yes, the risks yes, that yes. they experience through the risk of cancer. Now, do they not have a right to do that? When throughout history, Homo sapiens pretty much have smoked. They've smoked various things. And so the issue is that when you make a war on it, you make you, an you, enemy of something. You yes. can make an enemy, yeah. and you can no longer you think more, about it. You do more harm. Yes, and yeah. it's like nowadays, yeah. if somebody's smoking cigarettes, it's almost like they're murderers. Like right. we want them out of here. Oh, we do not want them around us. So again, it's that confusion we have and so the much fog of, of war. Yes, in, in a way that is just, and not that it hasn't always been there. It's been there, but now it's like up and out. It's in our face. It's like we see it everywhere in terms of 
what's going on right now. Well, we have so much media that sort of pre sort of it's sort of I was going to say it pre disturbs us. You know, it's like the media kind of teaches us to go to war with this idea or that idea to go to war with this kind of food or that kind of food or go to war with this kind of illness or that kind of illness or go to war with Iran or Afghanistan and it it does so in a way that is i think often more confusing yes. you know that what happens is the fog of war actually seeps out into people's awareness and the, the anxiety around being manipulated or not knowing what's real or, or not or, knowing what's real yeah yeah you know when i think back in you know the years of working with all the different you know healers the you know really profound healers on you know both in a western or an eastern sense one of the things that was always you know like the first step was that you had to make peace with your enemy. Your problem was your best friend. Mm-hmm. Anything that you 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 had reactivity around, you had to you had to, you know, steady the mind. You had to still mm-hmm. the mind. You had to kind of get the energy off it because it was creating you know it was just creating more of what you were trying to get rid of. Right. And, and so, and what do you think so, happens these days when let's? I I like to stick to some of these simple things like making more on gluten or making more <laughs> on certain kinds of foods where people say, that's "Well, true. if you eat those yeah. foods, yeah. you really are that's gonna that's gonna harm you. Right. Those foods are gonna like harm I caught you. with some of my colleagues and that, that I'm um, I often thought of them as gluten fascists. Yeah, gluten fascists. They, there are gluten fascists. Yes. bread like, or get that or, away from right, me. Right. Yeah. Or I, once I was with a, a, a friend, actually one of the uh, funders in in my life, and we were in this restaurant, and she's a strict, strict vegetarian, and she started to speak very, very loud and very negatively about other people who are having steak right. at the table that's, next to us, and right. I found it so yeah. upsetting because right. I thought, you know, again, you can't. Yeah. yeah. So that's exactly it. Yeah. So as soon as we go to war with something. Yeah then we can enter into the fog of war. And then in the fog of war, we can't be sure whether we should trust something or not trust it. And often our rules, our rules of conduct go out the window at that point. It's like we no longer actually conduct ourselves, even according to our own desires to be respectful of others. You know, maybe the woman, your friend, she wouldn't have said to herself that she wanted to insult other people who were eating there. But she was in a fog of war. She, she was, was at war. That's a nice way with, of looking at it. With that's eating a kinder. meat, you know. Yes, yeah, yes, you know, she like, was at war with yeah. it. She wasn't just that's herself not, not yeah. wanting to eat meat. She had she had made a war around it. It's more compassionate. Well, it's. <laughs> I, I hope it's clearer that we can go to war with something that is actually. I, I would say we can go to war with anything that we regard as truly bad, and truly, you know, kind of get this away from me that we hate and then once we go to war with it we create a confusion that is the fog of war and then it's very hard to come out of the fog of war and actually be able to use sensitive and discriminating judgment or skilled intelligence you know like when we're in a mindset that is basically war oriented we don't know what's true so that's that was really what McNamara was talking about also with with the US going after Japan in the way that it did firebombing all of the Japanese cities before we actually set off 
to hydrogen bombs. And we, so we killed massive, massive numbers of civilians. And we punished them in a way that was unconscionable. But it was as though we could not see what we were doing because we'd made them the enemy, because they had had the nerve to go after a superpower, you know, as though they could do something to kind of get on top of the U.S. And I'm afraid we have that attitude as a country in general, and we often fly that flag under some idea that we're the protectors of democracy or that we're the protectors of the free world. And actually, we are in a big fog of war about that whole protecting thing that we were going to bring democracy to the Middle East when in fact we brought just more and more chaos. And so, you know, the reason I wanted to talk about the fog of war is to say that there's war, which is actually when you go after your enemy and you try to destroy or you try to harm or you try to humiliate, expose your enemy. But then there's the fog of war once you've gotten into war with something right. or somebody. And in that fog, you can't actually use your intelligence. Right. You can't right. do anything, you know. And so that's where, again, somebody like Nelson Mandela, to me, is actually teaching us that you can come out of a situation where people have tortured you and humiliated you, and you still have a choice about the way you want to respond to them. You can respond to them by actually recognizing them as homo sapiens like yourself, recognizing their violence as something that is built into the system, and then attempting to teach them that there is actually a way to respect others that transcends revenge, that transcends just wanting to get back something, you know. And I think he was one of the only leaders in the world who did precisely what he did. I mean, others have approached that idea and certainly, you know, Sun Tzu in the Art of War basically gives rules for how to treat your enemies. It's very kind of um, Confucian. Yes, and yeah, it, and yeah. it, but it makes sense, again, yeah. in terms of this idea that as you go on, these, these beings that were your enemy, now they're going to be your neighbors. Well, I think I know. mentioned also in another podcast we were when... Um, I was involved with all that research on site in Europe with the, um, you know, during the, you know, all the different, the different wars, but when you had people who refused to be conquered, and so there was this, like, these massive suicides. Yeah. So it didn't matter. They were threatened, but they, they, they held the equanimity, and they held their values, and when they saw that they couldn't do anything to change it, they just were willing to die. So you had these massive, massive acts of extraordinary courage in one way when you think about um but wouldn't it be it would be uh, still a whole other thing if it were possible to not hold a particular line about your own snow globe but to recognize if you're being conquered well you're being yeah if you are being being conquered conquered, yeah if you could recognize 
that there is the possibility of truth and reconciliation. Right. That there is the possibility for human beings well, because in our day and age that, that we can do that. Where that's a possibility. But I mean, back in the early days. Back that in was, the well, yeah. you know, I mean, I think can, you know, it, it, again, when you read the the art of war, what you what you realize is that okay, so the the Chinese were arguably the greatest civilization on earth. Possibly the Greeks were up there, but. The Chinese, because there were so many and they lasted for so long, they had some features that I don't think any other culture has ever actually come up with. And of course, they also weren't a single culture. It was a bunch of city-states. They had, you know profound wisdom traditions woven into into, yeah, into, the, into the society, into the tribes, into, I mean... You right, know, with, so they with, weren't, they weren't yeah. a single culture, but the art of war, basically what it, what it says is that when you have conquered somebody, like when you have, when they've given up, even in a smaller situation, say where you've gotten your way, in the family or you've people have agreed okay we'll take your orders on this or in a larger situation when we you know defeated some of the terrorist organizations in Afghanistan you know at that point you have a choice and what your choice is is that you you can stop the aggression and you can recognize that now these people will be your neighbors. So you've stopped because you've defeated, and now these are going to be your neighbors. And so how can you treat them so that they can actually become your neighbors, that they won't become your enemies again? And because the cycle of war and then destruction and then stabilization and then war and destruction and stabilization, that's the cycle, it's not peace. Peace doesn't even get in there. I mean, there's some stabilization, and then there's war again. To bring that into a framework which is, let's say, humane or livable, requires some rules at the point that you've defeated the the other group or the other person. And what, what the main role that Sun Tzu is trying to illustrate is the rule of interdependence, That's that right. now these will become your neighbors. And so if you don't want them to become your enemies, then you have to offer things so they don't regard you as essentially their destroyers. So that's what Nelson Mandela did. I mean, he offered peace and reconciliation as a process whereby nobody, nobody would be judged and put into prison for what they confessed or what they said happened to them. Well, a lot of the, you know, the Tibetan... uh Buddhist Rinpoches, Lamas, nuns who have been imprisoned by the Chinese in Tibet have also done the same thing. So yes. that they had yes. their, their their jailers or, you know, who, who witnessed the kind of torture and suffering they went through, but they never they were, ever, retaliate. Um, they never retaliated. They, they didn't retaliate. And Garchin Rinpoche, when he mm. first came to the States, that was such an extraordinary uh, teaching for all of us because he was in for 23 years. And he had this, you know, he was known for... Um, he was in... What? He was in, 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 in a Chinese in, prison, Chinese, yeah, in Tibet, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And so you know that again, that is the recognition yeah. of this foundational unity within the w- self. But it's within, it's with all human beings. We have a foundational unity, and so that's that recognition that we are the same species. That also we share this fundamental 
awakened mind. And that is the thing that is very hard for individuals to be certain about. And yet, you don't really have to be certain about it in order to benefit from the teachings about it. You know, so that the, you don't have to be certain that we share this fundamental awakened mind in order to recognize that if you've defeated somebody or humiliated them and they are still in interaction with you, it's a good idea to treat them kindly because they will become your neighbors. They will continue in your organization. They will be a part of your ongoing planning. So if you treat them respectfully, there's a chance that they will then actually treat you respectfully and you can put an end to that particular moment of conflict or that particular battle or whatever. And again, within within the US, our political system has entered into a war and the two sides of it, let's just call it the red church and the blue church, have been at war with each other in such a way that there's been very little option for if there's a victory or there's a defeat for people to actually treat each other as friends and people within their differences. And, you know, as I said in an earlier podcast, you'd think that we would remember the Civil War. It wasn't that long ago. That's the worst, most disastrous war this country has ever had. And so, you know, I don't think we want to repeat it. It makes you reflect on the on on you know the whole notion of education. You know well, what we what we teach each other, what we remember. I mean, I think of the when you were quoting in the early days the, from Solzhenitsyn when he talked about education being you know in terms of yes ignorance or or the blind spots or all the things that keep people in a reactive mode i mean so that's one reason why podcasts are serving now as a kind of educational educational educational. tool to take out to take into the world a point of view that is not widely accepted so i wanted to just actually read a little bit more from this memoir by mingyur rinpoche in love with the world amongst journey through the bardos of living and dying came out just a couple weeks ago Uh, and this i think does have to do with the fog of war even though he's talking about actually the way that we walk around often in our own experience continuously longing for what we don't have like the grass is greener someplace else and so to me this is the same sort of confusion that's in the fog of war when we actually believe that there is a true enemy that we have to fight that we have to go after our continuous agitation reveals a low-level dissatisfaction this is part of a quote that never entirely ceases except for a few peak moments here and there. We are restless with this scent of something better close by, but out of our reach. It's like a subnormal fever, not worrisome enough to see the doctor, but not quite right either. We remain convinced that the perfect temperature or the perfect partner, the perfect job is just around the corner or over the fence 
Or you could say in the in the case of the enemy that we may remain convinced that if we just fight off this or we don't right. do that, right. that there will be this right. kind of end to this battle. We imagine that our compulsions will weaken. We will outgrow our immature cravings. Some new friendship or do- job will rescue us from our crippling loneliness and self-hatred or from the feeling that we are always making mistakes. Now, these, this, he says, is illogical because these fantasies of change for the good persist while few of them or none of them ever come to fruition. And that is the same with the fog of war. Like when you're in the fog of war, you think, well, if we just go after this group, or if we go after this disease, or if we go after this food, or if we go after this exercise, we're in a, we imagine ourselves in a battle with something that could defeat us. And if we just do this one more thing, then we'll be safe in this battle. But in fact, none of those things ever come to fruition. They never bring us the peace. They never bring us the sense of ease or the feeling of respect and kindness towards others. They just don't. They won't because they can't, because they're rooted in this fundamental confusion, which is in the fog of war. And that's this total uncertainty about what's going on and what's good for you and what's bad for you and so on. So clearing the fog of war really means that you absolutely have to see that being at war with anything will lead you to greater confusion and destruction. It will not lead you to peace, health, happiness, ease, never does, just won't. No matter how much you think, oh, this next step will do it, it just won't. And that, I think, is a teaching that's hard for people to get. It's not exactly subtle, but it's, I mean, it's because it's like you can see it working that way, but it, but it's hard for people to get. And so, you know, the reason I go back to Nelson Mandela, and of course the Tibetans have also done this, but he was at that moment, he was actually the victor. He, yes, he yes, had actually, yes. he was the leader yes. and he did this. Yeah. He, he said, I won't yeah. do this thing. Yeah. I yeah. will not right. do it. Right. And I will not make somebody my enemy right. at this moment that I am the victor. And so that was absolutely a quick clearing of the fog of war. But I think it's it's very rare because when people get into it, there is this tremendous uncertainty and confusion that usually snowballs into greater reactivity and more confusion and not into anything that, you have that clears. Also, when I was doing the, when I was interviewing, um, when I was working on the Holocaust and I was interviewing a lot of the survivors, that was one of the things they talked about, those individuals who touched their lives, who embodied non-reactivity in other mm-hmm. words who 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 in the face of that that tragedy that that horror they stayed kind compassionate and they did something that was helpful to another right or they shared the tiny little bread they had with another right. and and these very very human stories that it's just you know it's just important to remember that 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 exists and it's well, it's very, always available, yeah, it's you know, always so available. it's like yeah. on, on yeah. one hand, we're, we're highly motivated to go to war. Right. On the other hand, 
we also all have the capacity to step back and check in and check in with our own snow globe. Now, I also agree with Solzhenitsyn that often what allows one person to follow that path of decentering and checking in um, is is That's education. Another, pod- <laughs> another, <laughs> podcast. another podcast. What? It's but like it's speak- education. It's like yes, knowing yeah, yeah. that it's possible, yeah. and knowing also that the other road, the road of war, will never lead you to peace. That's it right. will never lead right. you right. to satisfaction, peace, right. happiness, kindness. Whether you're making war on sugar, smoking, right. Right. cancer, other countries, other people, it doesn't lead there. You know, it's it's interesting too. Sometimes when I'm 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 working with others and, and they're very very stuck and it's they're they're frozen in a fixed kind of point of view. And and when you help them understand that you know obstacles are the path. Yes. That you that that, that what you're trying to keep and push away is the very thing that you want to welcome in. Yes. And again, when I was saying earlier, your problems are your best friend. I mean, to to just break that that fixed kind of position that people are in, where there there is no change. It and can't yet, be changed. And yet, in the fog of war, you you generally cannot break anything open because people are too confused. Well, yes. When they're in that then, fog, yeah, yeah. they're really just reacting yeah. in their snow globe, and, that's and so very it's very hard to do that. Very very terrifying to really kind of pay attention to that because we've got again so much of that right now in our in in, in our in, culture in our culture and yeah. and people and you know from a place of you know just human kindness people are so so confused well yes because we are in the fog of war as a culture yeah. that fog has been created by i think mass media yeah. also social media and lots of information that actually does not lead us to anything. Right. It only leads to anxiety right. and reactivity. Right. It's a manipulation. And it does yeah. not yeah. lead yeah. us to yeah. any kind yeah. of ability yeah. to take that step back. Yeah. So, so we're so, like a herd of, of you know, sheep being led into slaughter. In the, well, in the fog of war, you know, we're yeah. in this fog yeah. of war. Wow. So, uh, so anyway, it's the a uh, rec- as well. yes, yeah. and yeah. recognizing that there is a, there is another way to to take a step back somebody like Nelson Mandela to study that particular path, recognize how he was able to do that. And then also to to recognize that truth and reconciliation, the movement that he founded, has the two ingredients, I think, for clearing the fog of war. One is some some sort of ability to speak about your own truth, the way you experienced it. That doesn't mean it's a truth for everybody, but... That's right the truth of what you've experienced and then also to in the reconciliation to to recognize that others are like yourself you know that they're they've also been harmed and hurt they also want happiness and they're also in this homo sapien form which is primarily you know a violent form of being so requires a lot to not do that so, you know, it's the truth and reconciliation movement and then not moving to judgment, but rather to having compassion was a real key to what Nelson Mandela was able to do for South Africa when he came out of prison. So, It's also um, inspired you in terms of the work you're doing with Real Dialogue and something that we'll talk about in our next podcast. That, you know, that aspiration is definitely there in the work that you're doing with Real Dialogue. Oh, it's entirely the reason why I got into this was recognizing that there is a way to move from creating an enemy, being in the fog of war, 
to some greater wisdom, but it's not the way that people typically move. Exactly. And it takes a whole re-education to re-education, find it. Re-education, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. That's a good place to <laughs> stop there. Just stop yes. here. Yeah. Polly, thank you. Thank you. This is very, very, very important information. Thank you. Thanks, Eleanor. So soon I will be teaching at the Rowe Conference Center. It's in Rowe, Massachusetts. And I will be offering two different programs. One is a couples retreat program, which is on the weekend of October 4th and 5th, 2019. And that's for anybody who wants to participate. You can check on the Roe website, R-O-W-E. And then I will be presenting as well a foundational training in dialogue therapy that begins on Monday, October 6th, and goes to October 11th. That first segment is a five-day program. It's part one of a two-part certificate training in dialogue therapy. And this training program is for any therapist who wants to enhance skills for couples therapy or wants to learn to do dialogue therapy, or for non-therapists who want to learn this training in order to become a real dialogue specialist. And we talked about real dialogue on several of the podcasts. The first week of the training is October 6th through 11th, 2019. And then the second week is March 6th through 11th, 2020. March 6th through 11th, 2020. And so this model of therapy based on real dialogue, and it's a structured, time-limited form of couples therapy that draws on psychoanalysis, mindfulness, and psychodrama. It can be applied to couples in conflict and couples who are having especially difficulties with their intimacy, as well as to other dyadic relationships where there's difficulties with repetitive conflicts. Uh, In the training, you'll be learning in lots of different ways through mindfulness practices, dyadic exercises, videos, lecture, intensive sessions, and you will learn about lots of different things, including the nature of personal love, challenges of equality, reciprocity, and mutuality, and the enemy factors in personal love. So there's lots more to the training, but if again, if you check on my website, www.youngeisendrath.com, or if you check on the Roe website, you will get the details for the training program October 6th through 11th, 2019, and then March 6th through 11th, 2020 for the full certification. And the uh, couples retreat precedes the weekend before that October 6th date. So I hope to see you there. I always look forward to the training. We learn a lot together, and it's also a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening. And to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.